0: The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. When was the last time you splurged on something when you knew it probably conflicted with one of your financial goals, like paying down debt or saving for future fun in retirement? Well, if you do this, you're not alone. It's because of present bias, or to use the psychobabble term, hyperbolic discounting. As humans, we have a tendency to let the immediate rewards of the here and now win out over a desired future reality. To learn more, check out the Cash Dash Dash, a planning tool brought to you by The Guardian Network to see just how much your short-term spends might be impacting your longer-term financial goals. Play today by visiting www.livingconfidently.com play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by my friend Larry Swedro, who is the Director of Research at the BAM Alliance. Larry has dedicated his life to educating others about prudent ways to invest, and he's here today to share some of that wisdom with us, uh, specifically as it's found in his latest book, Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. Welcome to the show, Larry.
1: Great to be with you, Daniel, and uh, just a uh, heads up for your listeners, uh, a must read
0: uh, is Daniel's own book on behavioral finance. Well, look, we're done here, Larry. That's all I needed from you. I just needed i just needed you to plug my book. I have nothing else to say. No, thank you very much. You've been, you've been very kind. Adding my book to your list of, I think, the top 14 or 15 behavioral finance books was a big honor for me, so thank you for that. And My pleasure. Well deserved. Yeah, so Larry is coming to us today from St. Louis, and we need to begin this conversation, Larry, talking about the most important things in life, which is baseball. Are are you a Cardinals fan?
1: Well, I have to admit, I grew up in the Bronx, just uh, northeast of the Bronx Zoo, so I'm still a diehard Yankee fan. Uh, But uh, now in St. Louis for 33 years, as long as the Cardinals are not playing the Yankees, I'm also a diehard Cardinal fan.
0: So the Cardinals and the Yankees, well, the Yankees and the Cardinals uh, respectively are 1-2 in all-time World Series rings. So uh it's a good it's a good place to to hang your hat. So well done. I'm a huge Cardinals fan hoping we can take in a game one of these days. So
1: and I will tell you that the Cardinal fans in my opinion having been in lots of ballparks around the country are without question the best baseball fans in America.
0: Well, there's uh you know there's uh, there's among Cardinals fans, they would say that they're the best fans in baseball. That gets used derisively by, I think, people who don't agree. But but I I certainly find Cardinals fans to be knowledgeable and polite and, and great patrons of the game. So it's, it's a good group to be a part of. And I'm third generation, so... Proud, proud to be part of that. So I want to dig into your book, which is absolutely fantastic. It is enormously comprehensive for anyone who is thinking about retirement from literally every single angle. It's a, it's a must read. Uh, the name of it, again, is Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. Uh, one of the things that I like that you talked about early in the book but you talked about some of the non-financial elements of a successful retirement. You know, these you have these 10 key elements. Uh, they have purpose, fun, giving back, and a host of others. Uh, I think this is one of the most overlooked pieces of planning for retirement. We all know that we need money. We're all setting aside for that, right? But there's also a, a lot of psychological considerations when planning for retirement. So which of these key elements do you think get, get overlooked or ignored as folks start to plan for retirement?
1: Well, I'm glad you uh, raised this issue, Daniel, because uh, we think, uh, Kevin Grogan and I, are co-a- my co-author, that this issue was so important while so many people focus uh, when they do any planning on the financial aspects and maybe the legal issues related uh, to estate planning. Uh, they fail to focus on planning a meaningful life in retirement. And so we made that the first chapter of the book. And the key things that that people miss are that when you're at work, you're generally uh, accomplishing the two most important things for for being happy. Uh, Number one is that's where you get the your social relationships your connections your friendships uh because you spend so much time there and the second thing is you have what i call this reason to get up in the morning a sense of purpose fulfillment accomplishment and without those things if you don't plan to replace them with other things you can end up with serious problems and i'll just cite two statistics when I learned them, I had an incredible impression on me. And the first thing is, if I were asked uh, which cohort of the population had the highest suicide rate, I would have guessed young, maybe teenage girls. I did lose a sister, unfortunately, uh, to suicide. Um, And it's not them, it's actually recently retired men. Uh, And that's because they've lost that purpose, that sense of accomplishment, those friendships, uh, et cetera, the social connections. And the second one is uh, that the highest cohort of divorces in the United States is what is now being called the silver divorces because the typical of my generation anyway is the wife says I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch and now all of a sudden this other person is there 24 hours a day when the wife uh has established her own life and connections and purpose and stuff and now all of a sudden this person wants to be there 24 hours and is looking for them to help them find that purpose and friendship so you really need to plan and uh i rec we highly recommend a book called your retirement quest by alan specter Will help me write this chapter.
0: Well, it's a it's a fascinating and important point to bring up because for the first time in the history of the United States in peacetime, um, life expectancy is dropping, and it's due primarily to suicide, uh, and it's due to of course drug addiction, opioid addiction in particular, and so we we're all I think very at least all of us who work in finance are sort of intimately acquainted. With the the financial crisis, like the lack of preparedness financially that we're looking at as a country for retirement, uh, but there's also a crisis of meaning that's equally significant. And when you look at the research, you know, research done by Martin Seligman and other people who are in the positive psychology movement. You know, they they have these five points uh, of of what makes us happy, and it's called the PERMA model. So it's you know positive experiences, which is just basically fun, Uh, engagement, which is uh, hard work, relationships, meaning, working for something bigger than ourselves, Uh, and an advancement. You know, getting better today than you were yesterday. And if you think about work, if you know a a good job scratches you somewhere between 3 to 5 of those itches right those five things you need to be happy a good job will will meet a lot of those and we find ourselves in a bit of a vacuum if we retire and just you know go play golf all day so i think it's it's absolutely you know good work that you're doing with your with your colleagues there early in the book talking about this crisis of meaning as well as as the financial preparedness crisis
1: yeah, the, the really sad part is Americans tend to be generally pretty good about planning. We plan weddings, uh, bar mitzvahs, sweet 16s. Uh, we, when we set up a business, we tend to write business plans. But I can tell you I've met very, very few people who sit down and write a plan for their life in retirement. Uh, And that's what Alan Spector's wonderful book does a great job of, is setting out a way to help you establish a plan. And he talks about actually practicing that plan to the point of you set up a schedule. Maybe it's uh, 8 to 10 o'clock, you're at the gym taking yoga or Pilates classes or playing pickleball or whatever it might be. Uh, in the afternoon, you work as a candy striper at the hospital, or you take courses at the university in whatever subjects might interest you. Uh, you know those kinds of things. Literally laying out hour by hour what you're going to do, and maybe on a vacation, take a week and practice it uh, to make sure it's not a fantasy and it's something that will give you that sense of purpose and fulfillment and those social connections you talked about, then.
0: So stick sticking with this theme of, of mapping out a, a life in retirement and, and knowing ourselves, which is of course a, a big interest area of mine, you lay out a seven step discovery process in the book, which made a lot of sense to me. It begins with values and goals and, you know, moves on from there to more sort of concrete financial considerations. Uh, but I'm also aware of how, Poorly, we we know ourselves. You know, I think any student of psychology, and I know you are yourself a student of psychology and human behavior. Any student of psychology learns pretty quickly that we're poor descriptors of our you know of our motivations. We're poor descriptors of our behaviors. So, how can we, or how can advisors uh, help us? How can we figure out who we are and what we really want? Because I think some of us uh, we're so inundated with you know, the world of work and the, the, the corporate culture that we just sort of uh, inherit these values that may not be our own. We just sort of uh, swallow hook, line and sinker sort of the values that are in the air. So in this process of mapping out our values and goals, how can we really get to the bottom of, of what we want?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll add one other comment uh, to your statements, which is the easiest person to fool is yourself sure Uh, and uh, so that's an issue but in the book uh, we refer to uh, george kinder's wonderful book the seven stages of money i think he that book does a great job of helping people uh, to figure out their values their purpose in life the other things you mentioned and he does so by asking some really great questions Uh, So we can touch on three of them, I think, are really great for people to make sure they can answer. Importantly, sitting down if they're married with their spouse to make sure there's agreement there. Uh, The first is to imagine that you are financially secure. You've got that your financial plan is in place and you have enough money to take care of your needs. How would you live your life? What would you do with the money? Would you change anything that you do um, and just dream about it and describe a life of yours that's as rich as you can make it? Uh, Of course, then the idea is to build a plan for your life and your investments to allow you to achieve that goal. The second question, and these these next two are related, is we ask people very specifically. We tell them, you visit your doctor. It tells you you have somewhere between five and 10 years left to live. The good part is you will never be sick in that period. Uh, So the bad news is you have at most 10 years to live, but you got at least five. The good news is you will be healthy every single day, Uh, and you don't know when you will die. So the question then is, knowing that, what would you do with your remaining time? What would you change in your life, and how will you do that? Again, then figure out how do we build a plan that allows you to hit that bucket list and achieve all the things that you want to do. And the third question is related, which is your doctor shocks you with the news you have only one day left to live. Think about the feelings that arise and confront your mortality and ask yourself, what dreams did I leave unfulfilled? What do I wish I would have accomplished or had done? Uh, and then figure out a plan to make sure when you do pass away, you're you you are not uh, you you have achieved those goals. So those are three of the deep questions that we spend hours, literally, with people and you know prompting them with further questions to make sure that they have answered them fully and getting the spouses to agree.
0: So confronting our own finitude and our own mortality is one of the toughest things we can do. There's There's a pretty robust body of psychological research that when you ask someone to consider, you know, the inevitability of their own death, they tend to get upset. They tend to become more punitive and angry and things like that. And, but... It's also, I think, the, the royal road to insights about what matters to you in life. I mean, the, the reality of our own impermanence is what makes life so precious. It, what makes, it, it's what makes seizing the moment so important. And so I, I absolutely agree that, you know, considering the fact that we're not going to be here forever and everything's a trade-off is a, is a really powerful way to go. So I, I love those questions. Uh, I love those kinder questions you shared. Those are, those are really wonderful
1: yeah, I we even at when my daughter was bar bar mitzvahed and I had to give a speech, you know, offering some sage uh, wisdom uh, to her. One of the things I told her was that to think about life, and at the end of it, you will never say, "I wish I had."
0: Right. So one of I'm going to totally forget which philosopher said this, uh, but. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, like I'm going to, again, space this philosopher, he was asked, you know, what's the secret to living a good life? And he said, spend more time in graveyards, like effectively, you know, spend more time contemplating your mortality. So I think it's, I think it's good, good advice. So my, my favorite part of the whole book, because I perhaps have a little bit of an uh, apocalyptic bent, You know, yeah. look, I'm from I'm from Alabama. I grew up in a conservative uh, Christian household. I wouldn't I wouldn't be I, I wouldn't be myself if I didn't have a little bit of an apocalyptic bent. But you have a portion of the book uh, that's the four horsemen of the retirement apocalypse, and I would spend just a few moments talking about those. The the first of these is elevated equity valuations, and so uh, I just spent this morning reading a, a really great piece from Christine Benz that sort of aggregated all of the 10 to 15 year forecasts from the largest asset managers. And in a word, they're all saying kind of, you know, prepare for lower for longer, you know, prepare for anywhere from negative real returns to about 5% a year average was sort of the the most ambitious any of these large asset managers got. Uh, you base your analysis on the Schiller CAPE uh, which has been a, a poor timing mechanism, but a very good predictor at at longer intervals, so understanding you know first of all that, that no one knows anything and no one knows anything for certain about what will happen in the next ten years, but there is you know, there 's reason to believe with at least some degree of probability that equity, uh, high equity valuations will lead to diminished returns over the longer term. What, if anything, do clients do with this information? You know they hear this and they go, "Oh no, you know, stocks are you know stocks are dear right now. Should I sell? Should I panic what What do clients do with this first horseman?
1: yeah, so the the first horseman is, of course, as you pointed out, that equity valuations are much higher than they have been historically. Uh, and obviously, the more you pay, uh, in price for a dollar of earnings, the lower your returns are going to be. Uh, we do know that over the long term, corporate earnings grow at the rate of inflation plus uh, the rate of real growth roughly. you can't uh, otherwise if they can't grow faster, uh, than that because otherwise they would become the whole economy and there'd be no wages, right? <laughs> or, or anything you know, uh, else. So uh, what we do know is this, that the valuations, whether we use what's called the Cape 10, which looks at um, normalizing earnings over a 10 year period. So we're from the bottom of recession, we're not taking the current, P, you know, current earnings and then projecting them forward because that's abnormally low and we're at the end of a boom, then earnings may be unsustainable at that level. So we take a 10-year average. Uh, well, whether you use that 10-year average and adjust it for inflation uh, or you use the current price-to-earnings ratio or you use a CAPE 5 or a CAPE 8, uh, there's really no, not much difference. Any of them are as good a predictor of future returns, explaining about 40% of the next 10-year returns. So what that means is that we don't know what the next 10-year returns are. The only right way to think about it is a forecast has to be thought of as the mean of a very wide potential dispersion of outcomes. Think about a bell curve that's fairly flat and wide. So what we do know is this, Uh, uh, the simple math works is to take the inversion of the PE ratio, so we take an earnings yield like a bond yield. So if we have a 20 price earnings ratio, which is about what you have on the current CAPE uh, or the current uh, PE of 20, we would invert that to get an earnings yield of 5%. And that's where that figure you mentioned uh, of a 5% optimistic uh, number comes from. Uh, And that's a real expected return if you think inflation will be 2% then you would expect a nominal return of 7. That 5% real return is quite a bit less than the 7% real return stocks have earned over the last 90 plus years. Now, what we do know, Daniel, just to make sure that people understand, when you use that 5%, that means there's kind of a 50% chance uh That'll be more than five and a fifty percent chance it'll be less if we get uh bad news people don't like stocks, then they demand bigger risk premiums, and the p e ratios fall their earnings may not grow as expected uh and then you get much lower numbers than that, and high p e s like twenty don't mean you can't have even several more years of strong returns as we've seen over the last three or four or five years, when the P-E ratios have been elevated and stocks still did well. But that means future returns are likely to be even lower. So what you have to do is plan for any of these wide outcomes from a zero or slightly negative real return, as some are forecasting. I think those are too pessimistic as a base case, but they're possible. Uh, And you have to make sure your plan can sustain that uh, really bad uh, outcome. What I call, uh, we talk about in the book, having a plan B. That means if if that left tail of the distribution, the bad outcomes happen, what steps are you going to take to make sure you don't run out of money? You're not eating cat food, uh, to use that analogy. So that might mean, you move to a lower cost of living area, you downsize your home, you don't eat out every week, whatever it might be, but you build that into your plan today so if it does happen, you're not panicking, you already know the steps uh, and know the actions you will be required to take to make sure that you can still live a meaningful and, uh, and pleasant life.
0: I, I like the way that you talked about it as the sort of these forecasts or the mean, uh, the mean prediction uh, and, and to think of it as a bell curve with lock, lots of potentiality to the upside and to the downside uh, because a lot of people have been doom and gloom based on high CAPE and PE ratios, like you said, for three, four, five years and, and things have gone very well uh, on average. Um, but you know and that may continue or it, or it may not, and we, we just don't know. And I get a little twitchy, like I get a little nervous when people take historical, you know, long-term historical norms and plug them into their plans as as though they're gospel truth, you know, whether it be, you know, 10%, uh, 10% uh, gross returns in the stock market or the 4% rule or anything else, uh, a lot can happen, you know, and, and when you become a student of capital markets, you realize that uh, a lot can happen to the upside and to the downside, and you need to be prepared to move some of the levers that you talked about. Whether it's reducing your expenses, you know, managing where you live, managing your taxes, you know, all of these things I think are important things to keep in mind. So the the second horseman we want to talk about equally, uh, uh,
1: Daniel, if we could pause just for that because I do want to make a couple other real quick points. Do jump this, in on this issue. So the first thing is we mentioned the current P is about 20, producing a expected real return of five. That assumes the P.E. will not change, right? And so we know P.E.s can go higher or lower, uh, depending upon the risk people perceive. If We get a trade war, for example, that P.E. could go down. So forgetting even recessions, uh, that's a risk, and that's why we think about the distribution. Uh, and not consider it as one number. The second point is, I mentioned the Cape 10. When we look at that, you have uh, just as good a predictability as the current one year, but the Cape 10 is forecasting uh, it's actually at about 30, so invert that. You're a little over 3% for a real return, which is less than half the real return uh, of Uh, stocks over the long term. So that's more of an apocalyptic uh, possibility because what we do know is high valuations not only mean lower means, but it means the worst outcomes become even worse and the best outcomes become less good. And so the entire distribution of outcomes shifts to the left uh, and we, So we have definitely done that. It does not mean, however, as you pointed out, that stocks have to do poorly. There are very logical reasons for valuations to be higher, which I've written about over the years, criticizing all these gurus like, Jonathan, uh, like uh, Jeremy Grantham and John Husband, who was back as far as 2013, were forecasting stocks are 60, 70% un- overvalued. We're headed for one of the worst bear markets, uh, worse than maybe 08. Uh, and of course, the markets ignored them. And I pointed out a few things. This is helpful to at least people understand that they don't have to be so worried about, quote, high valuations. The first thing is that compared to historical evidence going back 100 years, we look back 100 years, there was no Federal Reserve to help regulate the economy and step in, provide liquidity, etc., cetera, uh, for the markets uh, to help reduce the risk of recession. We didn't have economic stabilizers like unemployment insurance and Social Security. And the government has become much more willing to step in with fiscal policies. Uh, the country is much wealthier. And the more wealth a country has, then stock prices tend to be higher because it's the wealthy who buy stocks and are willing to take risks. Uh, and we know around the globe, P-E ratios tend to fall uh, as countries increase in wealth. Uh, we have a much better regulatory environment. The SEC uh, you know, has become much stronger and better at uncovering frauds and preventing them. Not 100 percent, but we have much less risk in the system than we would have done uh, or would have had 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago. So looking at a 100 years of evidence and saying, well, the Cape 10 is average 17 and now it's 30, uh, you know, that's not really the right way to look at it. If you look even just at the last 50 years, it's more in the low 20s and there have even been some accounting changes and changes in dividend policies which would argue for even higher uh, figures than mid you know than low 20s so but what we do know is high valuations do definitely forecast lower expected returns. <laughs>
0: Yeah, one of the things you learn quickly when you study markets is that you never walk through the same river twice. You know, for for all the reasons that you that you pointed to. You know, economies look different, regulatory environments um, look different, governmental uh, realities look different, and so these are all nice rules of thumb. But you do need to be prepared for a lot of dispersion around even a very reasonable forecast. So moving on to this second horseman, uh, it's related. It's low bond yields, which sit at roughly 50% of their historic levels as of, you know, as of the writing of your book. Um, You know, the question, you know, sort of like my question with with the stocks is, in a world where, where stock valuations are re- uh, relatively elevated to, to relative to history, uh, in a world where bond yields are diminished relative to history, should we be doing anything differently? Is you know is there still a place for bonds? Should we be trimming our allocations to stocks, or or is sort of staying the course the best path in, in light of these first two horsemen?
1: Yeah, so great question. Uh, Before I answer, I just want to show people uh, how important understanding current valuations are. You know, historically, stocks got 10. We think the numbers are more likely to be in the six to seven, so a four to five percent real return for stocks. So, Uh, And bonds historically have got more like five to six, and now you're under two or may call it two. So uh, if you're uh, sitting there, retiree at maybe a 50% stock allocation, well, you used to get, uh, you could have expected a return like seven to 8% over the last 90 years. Well, today, at best, you're going to get maybe seven in stocks and two on bonds. That's four and a half, not much more than half. So you cannot rely on the historical data or you're likely to end up falling well short of your goals. You have to be realistic and make assumptions based on the current valuations. So turning to what role the bonds have in this current environment, one of the worst mistakes that we see people make is that they live off of their interest and dividend income rather than taking what we call a cash flow approach or a total return approach. And a cash flow approach can work fine if your bond yields are five or 6% and dividend yields historically have been more in the four to 5% area. So you're generating four to 5% of your portfolio as cash flow, and you could live off of that and do fine. Well, today, dividend yields, because corporations are paying out far fewer dividends, uh, which actually makes sense. It's actually dumb for corporations generally to pay out dividends. Investors would be much better off if they use the dollars to buy back stock, and you could create your own self dividend, uh, which would be more tax efficient if you need the cash flow. But we see low dividend yields uh, and low interest rates, and so people say, "Well, I'm only getting a 2% dividend yield, 2% on my bonds, and I need, say, four or five percent to live on." Now I got to go buy junk bonds or emerging market bonds or invest in real estate investment trusts or other riskier assets. And then the risk shows up. We get a 2008 and all those things drop 40, 50, 60%, and your whole plan blows up, that's why people need to understand that the role of bonds in the portfolio is to dampen the overall volatility to an acceptable level, one you can live with and sleep with, so your equity risk isn't too great, and take the risk on your equity side uh, and if you're going to own any riskier bonds, you will, generally you should be thinking of them as maybe even part of your equity allocation, if you will. We don't invest generally in uh, almost any riskier bonds. We only buy for our clients uh, FDIC and short CDs because they yield much more than Treasuries generally. Uh, and uh, AA and A rated municipal bonds uh, and even there, we go beyond that. They not only have to be AA and AAA rated, but they also have to be either essential service revenue bonds or general obligations. We wouldn't buy a AAA rated bond related to a stadium or a healthcare facility, because they may not be AAA five or 10 years down the road, and you have greater risk of the fall we want as minimal risk in these as uh, as appropriate for the use of and the role that bonds play.
0: Well, you know, it's a great point because I think the danger, if the future plays out like I think many professionals think it will, and we have these these diminished returns, I think the danger is that people get impatient, people get greedy. Uh, and people move up the risk spectrum and start reaching for yield in ways uh, that are that are inappropriate or ill advised and so it 's important to remember that that bonds ultimately are are ballast for your portfolio that's to keep volatility at an acceptable place. And to keep you in your seat, you know, as the behavioral guy, I need to chime in and say, you know, a lot of of this is just uh, bonds allow volatility to exist at a level that you can bear the ride. And so to not to not try and use them for for more or less than that, I think, is is sound advice.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'll add one of the other worst mistakes that I think almost all investors make is they think of dividends as income. Uh, no dividends have nothing to do with income. They are just the company returning their cap- its capital to you, and the stock price drops as a result of that dividend payment. Uh, there, there's not—that's not income. It's not like a CD that you pay a hundred for and it's paying you two percent. Well, you get your two percent, and the CD is still a hundred. If the stock is at a hundred and they pay a Two dollar dividend, the next minute, the stock is at 98. Uh, there was no income there. it's just a return of capital.
0: <laughs> right.: Yes, uh, you have written great stuff on, on how to think about dividend in uh, dividends. Uh, Meb Faber is another one who I think has written. Uh, some really powerful stuff about about dividends that that helped shape my thinking. So as we turn to the third and fourth horseman here, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the human costs of, of retirement, uh, specifically longevity uh, and the costs and, and risks associated with long-term care. One one stat that I found in your book that I thought was incredible was that a 65-year-old has a 50% chance of living to 92 uh, and a 25% chance of making it to 97. Um, I have young children when, um, when my son was born, so my middle child, who's now six, When he was born, the doctor told us that he had a 35 percent chance of living to be over a hundred. You know, people in in his age cohort. I even, you know, I have a daughter younger than that, and so uh, this is an incredible, uh, you know, in in some ways an incredible blessing, but in some ways an incredible burden that we as a human race have never faced before. So, how are we? uh, How can we cope with and deal with these new realities of adulthood being pushed further and further back? Uh, and now, longevity being uh, such a, a pronounced factor in how we have to think about retirement.
1: Well, well, of course, first of all, this is good news, of course, that we're likely to live longer as long as you take care of yourself. So, message number one take care of yourself, eat healthy, exercise, uh, and exercise your mind uh, to reduce the risk of cognitive decline, dementia, et cetera. But the data you cited is actually even. "Quote worse in terms of planning purposes because a 50% chance of a 65-year-old living in 92 is much higher if you're a couple, and you obviously have to plan that one of the two of you will live beyond that. And the um, mistake that people make is, well, my life expectancy is 92 in that case. I only have to plan." I'm 65 for 27 years. Well, no. There's a 50% chance you're going to live longer. You've got to plan probably to be 97 or 100, and now you got your spouse in there as well. You really have to be planning for 30, 35 years today uh, for somebody who's a 65-year-old couple with an average health perspective. So that means you, you have to have your money last a longer time, which means some of the rules of thumb that people used to use that you could safely withdraw 4% a year, uh, of your portfolio. Well, if it only had to last 20 or 25 years, that's fine. It's gotta last 30 or 35. Well, maybe not. And of course if stock returns are much lower and bond yields are lower, that old four percent rule we think it should be thrown out the window, and it's more like about you want to really be conservative, I would say three percent I'd be perfectly comfortable with more like three and a half, so you have to plan for this much longer time frame uh, and you need to consider issues like having long term care or planning for it and you know, we, the odds of needing long term care are incredibly high. You'll need it at some point. And in many areas of the country, it's over $100,000 a year. Uh, and I see and we see as clients many people in my generation, and I'm uh, 68 now, still have parents alive, and many of them are being forced to put their parents in Medicare facilities because they can no longer support their parents, and the parents ran out of money. And that's the last thing anyone wants to do, uh, if you've been in a Medicare facility, uh, is to have to go there or put your parents there. So you really need to build a plan that takes these longevity risks into account. And one of them might be considering buying longevity insurance through the purchase of a guaranteed payout annuity.
0: So, you know, I think you make a, a great case here for sort of rethinking some of these old saws or these old, you know, these old numbers, because I'm, I'm going to forget the exact numbers. But I know when S- Social Security was implemented and this idea of a 65 year old, uh, you know, re- retiring and collecting Social Security uh, first came online, you know, life expectancy was much, much shorter than it is today. So your, your money didn't have to last that long. Like I think, for many many people in the future, there should there there should be no expectation that you're going to quit working when you're 65, and you know, sure enough, here you are at 68, uh, staying sharp, talking to me, and, and still very much very much in the game. Uh, I, I think we have to rethink some of these rules of thumbs and these assumptions about when when it's time to retire, when it's time to pack it in, uh, because for the for the average American, I mean, funding. Funding even a very modest lifestyle for 30 years takes a truckload of money.
1: Yeah, so here's some interesting statistics I think you'll appreciate especially, Daniel, but your audience should as well. There are now over 70,000 people in Japan, which has a population of about a third roughly of the U.S., who are over 100 And the average retirement age in Japan, I believe now, is either 71 or 72. Uh, Because you're going to be living a lot longer, uh, you need to be saving a lot more, uh, and you're healthier, much better shape. And when I was growing up, anyone who was that age had had... probably a very difficult life, lived through the Great Depression. They were worn out uh, by tougher working conditions, tougher jobs physically. Uh, I hardly knew anyone who was more than 75. And today, 75 is not even considered that old anymore. So you have to plan on working longer because you need your dollars to last a lot longer as well. And I'm not sure how many people want to retire anyway when they think about all the issues we discussed about where they get their friendships, meaning, sense of accomplishment, et cetera. I'm working because it's not work for me. I, uh, I, you know, the day, My line is the day it becomes work is the day I'll stop doing it.
0: Yeah, well, it's a it's a great point. I think there's a whole another podcast to be done and a whole nother conversation to be had about you know folks who are so hell bent on retiring early. Um, I mean, I I completely understand the the point of saving aggressively, trying to achieve financial independence at as early an age as possible. But but the idea that you want to retire so early, I think, is often predicated on this idea that work is uh, unpleasant or that work is drudgery and if you if you find a job you love you know like Warren Buffett said you you skip to work every day and so i think that's an important again personal consideration is you know finding the sort of work getting the kind of education that lines you up for the sort of work that you can do for a very very long time because unless you're just independently wealthy most of us are going to be at this i think well into our 70s in this new milieu
1: yeah, I agree, and that's a great opportunity for people who are in jobs they don't find fulfilling to go find a second career. Uh, you may not need to earn a lot of money. If you've done a decent job of saving, you're, you'll get significant dollars also from Social Security. But even if you could pick up another twenty or $30,000 a year uh, doing maybe even part-time work... Uh, then that pays for your eating out, going to the movies, go visiting the grandkids, uh, et cetera, and it prevents you from having to dip into your portfolio and gives you a purpose finding things that you enjoy doing.
0: Yes so uh, you have a fifth horseman here, not being a, a slave to biblical convention, you have a fifth you have a fifth horseman here, which is is something that I think about a lot, which is the potential inability of the government to fully fund its liabilities. so I mean, if you go to the social Security website, it says right there like look." we are on the precipice of some problems. And you you write in the book that at the current clip, we will only be able to fund Social Security uh, at about a 75% uh, clip a mere 15 years from now. So politicians seem uh, content to kick the can. Nobody wants to mess with you know, grandma's grandma's check. So politicians don't seem to have a lot of appetite for taking this on in, a, in an immediate way. It seems likely that they will continue to kick the can on this. Uh, what what do you see as sort of the range of possibilities here with with respect to Social Security?
1: Yeah, well, the president, I'd say it's really sad that we elect people and then they can't do a job when everybody knows this is an issue. Uh, and this blame goes on both parties, neither one which seems willing to step up here and get the job done, which was tackled in a serious way in prior administrations. Uh, and the issue is well known, uh, written back in the early 90s, Uh, a book called The Coming Generational Storm, uh, which is a wonderful book I'd encourage people to read. It's just as applicable today, talking about the problem. So this is not a surprise. Demographics, at least in this case, are destiny here. We know what's coming down the pike. And as that book pointed out, if politicians were serious, we'd be able to fix the problem fairly easily. No big issues would have been had or no big steps would have had to been taken, but the longer you wait, then the bigger the steps have to be. So the things that could be done, for example, and obviously need to be done is to raise the age of retirement. Uh, You can't fund, you know, it used to be maybe when I was growing up a five or max 10 year retirement. And now you're talking 20 years average for people and some are going to go 30 and even longer so obviously have to be working longer and people are much healthier the jobs are generally much easier we're in a much more of a service economy, Uh, people can work out of their homes even a lot Uh, and people want to work uh, longer so one is raise the age of retirement slowly probably up to eventually will have to be to uh, age 70, I would think, uh, from 65 uh, now 66, I think it is. Uh, the second thing, and they should be doing this regularly, is raising the amount of wages that are subject to the Social Security tax. And the third is you could raise the tax slightly. If you do all three, you only have to make minor changes. If you do one, it would be incredibly bad, Like you'd have to raise the age of retirement maybe to 75 or you'd have to raise the tax by you know a very large amount and sadly the longer we wait the worse the problem gets so i tell people if you number one social security is not bankrupt that's nonsense and too apocalyptic as you stated and i think it's now 13 years will be able to only fund 75%. So we tell people, if you want to be conservative, plan on getting only 75% at that point of what the government is promising you. Build a plan around the rest of it. But my guess is uh, I'm hopeful that the politicians will eventually wake up and take some action uh, to help fix this uh, problem
0: yes here here's here's hoping but i but i will not I will not hold my breath that that anything will happen until it's just right, knocking knocking on the door of of tragedy uh, larry to to close out, I want to talk a little bit. You have a a great piece in your book about some of the unique considerations that women face in in preparing for retirement, so women of course uh, live live longer on average uh, make less on average because of the gender pay gap. What what are some of the what are some of the uh, specific considerations that that women face in preparing for retirement and how can they take these these things into account when preparing uh, for the future?
1: Well, let's just add a few to the ones you listed. It's not necessarily even just the gender pay gap, but women tend to take more time off uh from their work career which of course reduces their opportunities to earn income during those periods and then save uh, and it likely reduces their chances of promotion because they don't have those experiences uh, they also tend to just from an emotional standpoint women tend to be more conservative and put less money into equities uh, than men and therefore they may end up with less of a wealth uh, accumulation at the end of the period. Uh, So you need to recognize these things. Couple other things uh, I would note is that not only do women tend to live longer, but as they age, when uh, we now are like, my mother-in-law just passed away uh, at the age of 96, When you have this sandwich generation, it's often the woman, or more likely the woman, who is taking time off to take care of those parents. I've seen lots of cases like that. Uh, A woman I spoke to the other day basically lost her job because she was having to deal with her mother, 96 year old. Uh, So that creates uh, another problem. The woman tends to be the one who more often deals with those issues. And the last thing I'll point out is that because women live longer, uh, they are more likely to be widowed, and when they are widowed, women tend to remarry at a lesser rate than men, uh, partly because there's a smaller pool available to them, uh, because women do live longer, and obviously you can live a lot cheaper too than one. So women have all of these issues that they have to deal with. And one other one, which is really sad, we highlight in the book, in a couple of places, criminals know that women historically are more susceptible to being uh, a victim of crimes uh, and uh, partly because they're older and more living alone, uh, and they target elderly women. And now we have all these crimes invading their social security, stealing their accounts, raiding their banks, et cetera. So you have all these issues that you have to deal with one from a financial perspective, planning to live longer, making sure you're not getting too conservative. You have to make sure you address the issues of being at risk for being abused, put into your plans that you have. people who are watching over your financial assets and you're protected from cybersecurity effectively. Uh, uh, All of these issues need to be addressed and you have things like durable powers of attorney for financial and health matters to protect them. Uh, I'll add one last point, uh, Dan, we see so many parents whose financial retirement has been put at risk because they've been abused by their own family members financially taken advantage of either stealing from them or parents who are trying to support their children who have drug problems or others and you have to worry ultimately about your own retirement and tough love is sometimes required
0: i've I've had this conversation with many uh, with many friends who are approaching retirement that you have to Put on your own oxygen mask first, and that you can't, you can't help anyone if you if you don't help yourself. And so it's it's not a greedy thing, it's not a selfish thing uh, to to look after your own interests and to ensure that you're uh, that you're taken care of uh, with an eye to helping others, of course. But but ensuring that your own retirement is secured. And I think you ex- you know you make an excellent uh, point. I mean, I think some of the answers here about what to do are self evident you know, to work with a professional, to make sure uh, your plan reflects the realities of, I think, women on average live about seven years longer than, than men. That's no, that's no small time frame. you know, to fund a life, um, you know, making sure you're taking appropriate risk and, and have adequate equity exposure. And then I think both, both individuals and advisors who, you know, who listen to this show, this is, uh, you know, this is tragic. And it's a call to me, to do more training and more education uh, and, and more work around protecting protecting the assets and educating the general public about how to avoid fraud and scams because that's a that's a heartbreaking a heartbreaking way to to have this go wrong.
1: Yeah, we have a whole team dedicated to educating clients about cybersecurity risks, but let me add one other thing that everybody who's listening should have in their estate plans. First of all, you want to make sure you have durable powers of attorney for health and financial matters. You get in a car accident or whatever. You don't want the state determining what medical actions are taken or not. But secondarily, given how much longer we're living, as we age, every year we're alive, the risk of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's jumps considerably. Uh, And so, for example, my wife and I each have in our estate planning documents in our durable powers of attorney for financial matters, we have the right for the other spouse and our children to require us to take a cognitive test from a trained uh, medical professional. And if we cannot pass it, we are to be removed from all powers of attorney over our bank accounts, credit cards, brokerage statements, et cetera, because people get very defensive, won't give up that power, sense of control. So you have it written down while you're fully aware of the risks if, of getting exploited and making very bad decisions. Uh, while you're aware that that can happen, make sure your documents have that and. Note who you want to replace you making that decision, whether it is a trusted family member or a professional uh, attorney or a financial advisor, whatever. But if you don't have those in your documents and you're listening tomorrow, that's your homework assignment.
0: Yes, a great, a great way to end our conversation with some concrete practical advice that I have seen lead many families uh, down the wrong path, down a path of heartache if, they, if they've ignored that advice. So Larry, you are a prolific author. Uh, you're active on Twitter and other places. If people want to learn more about your work or to, uh, to get a hold of your books, where, where would you point them?
1: Well, first you can go obviously to Amazon. I've written 17 books. You can find them all there, see the reviews. Uh, And I write for three different websites. Uh, One is called the Evidence-Based Investor, every Friday. Uh, If you're a geek uh, on the financial side, you're really interested in the science of investing, there's a website called Alpha Architect, which I think by far is the best website. you're interested in the academic research, And the third site I write for is a site called Advisor Perspectives. Um, And so I write about investing, planning, and all of these other kinds of issues that we've talked about today.
0: Perfect. So the book, again, folks, is your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement. Cannot recommend it enough. I mean, it's, you know, 20 bucks that could save you millions. So I hope you'll go check it out. And Larry Swedro, thank you again for joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure. And just so your listeners know, one of the benefits you get from reading my book, uh, my email address is there. And I'm always happy to answer questions. I don't go to bed at night until I've answered every email. So, that's a side benefit there, free
0: advice. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I hope my listeners will never expect that from me because I'm going to bed. But hit <laughs> hit, hit Larry up. Uh, that's wonder, a wonderful gift. So, Larry, thank you again. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much for having me.
2: All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents, including Park Avenue Securities and the Guardian Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian copyright is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2020, Guardian. 2020-94491, expiration 03-2022.